you will, open your Bibles to John's Gospel, the sixth chapter. And as you're turning there, I want to ask you this morning, how confident are you? How sure are you? How certain are you that things are going to be okay in the end? That at the end of your life, or if Christ should come back before then, that God's going to welcome you in. That there's going to be a place for you. That you will, in fact, make it to the end. I mean, things seem fine now, but will it last? Will I remain faithful? Or will I fall away? And so I ask that this morning, and some of you this morning, hearing those questions are not very confident at all. Many doubts and fears when it comes to those questions. And that's okay. It's good to be honest. And so if that's you this morning, then hang on and please keep listening. Some of you are kind of, sort of confident, but you could be more confident. Keep listening. Some of you this morning would consider yourselves very confident. And so I'll ask a follow-up question to that first set of questions. Where does confidence come from? How can I be confident? Is it from what you've done? Is it from what Jesus has done? I want to give you this morning what will be perhaps a little different angle on a source for your confidence that things will in fact be okay in the end. It's not based on anything you or I can do. It is based on the activity of another. And what I realized... I'm doing through the course of the week and studying is I'm really just piggybacking on what Sean has done during Advent as he gave us all these portraits of why Christ came from these different passages of of scripture he came to be with us he came to free us to save us to release us to comfort us we're going to John 6 this morning to see that he also came to feed us And so we're going to look at what it means for him to feed us and connect the dots all the way to this table that's before us and find in all of that a great source of confidence and security that things will, in fact, be okay in the end. So let's read John 6. It's a long passage. It could have been longer. It could have been the whole chapter. It's just gold. But I've pared it down to these verses, beginning in verse 35. This is God's word. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you've seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven. Not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. 
For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the father except he who is from God. He has seen the father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. May God bless the reading and the teaching of his inspired, inerrant, infallible and authoritative word. Let's pray together for the help that we need. Oh Lord, would you come now and would you help? Would you help the messenger? Would you help all of our ears as we receive from you your word? Holy Spirit, aid our understanding. Cause the truths of the gospel and the reality that Christ feeds us to sink deep, deep down into our hearts and take root, and bring about lasting change. We pray in Christ's name, and for his sake, amen. What a rich, rich passage, and I've got to go ahead and say out front, we're just going to barely begin to scratch the surface of it. I'm going to leave lots untouched. Several huge themes and ideas here that I won't even mention, so you've got lots of work to do on your own this afternoon and in the coming days. Go back through. Pick apart the parts that I left out. Enjoy them. The other caution I'll give you is that this uh, is not a linear sermon. We're not going to look at verse 35 and figure it all out and wrap it up with a little bow on top and then move to verse 36 and figure out verse 36 and then on and on and on. But what we are going to do is we're going to use a zoom lens and we're going to zoom in on a few things and look at them in detail. We're also going to use a wide-angle lens, and we're going to back out, and we're going to look at the big picture, look at the whole, and we're going to do that back and forth and back and forth, okay? So you've been warned. 
Now to the outline that's in your bulletin. He came to feed us. The fact that he came to feed us is, number one, a source of eternal confidence and security. If you're familiar with John's gospel, you know that John records seven of these I am statements that Jesus uses to self-identify, to help us understand who he is. And so we've got one of those in our passage today in verse 35, I am the bread of life. And he goes on to describe in detail how as bread, he feeds and nourishes his people. And I love this passage. I've loved it for a long time and I've preached on it before. But I decided not to reduce, reuse, and recycle. Okay? I actually threw out the old, started with literally a blank sheet of paper and fresh readings of this text. And right off the bat, something really different jumped out at me that I just had not keyed in on before. This link in this passage between Jesus feeding us and our eternal security. And so here's a wide-angle lens moment. We're going to back out and we're going to take a a, a bird's-eye view of about 10 of these verses real quickly that have in them at least 13 mentions of our eternal security, reasons for our confidence and hope that it will be okay in the end. And so if you've got your bulletin open, if you're taking notes, perhaps you just want to circle the verse numbers or underline. Don't try to write all these down. I'm going to go too fast. Verse 37 Whoever comes to me, Jesus says, I will never cast out. Verse 39, there's two here. It's the will of him who sent me, number one, to lose nothing of all he's given me, and number two, to raise it up on the last day. You're going to hear that one a lot. Verse 40, there's two things here. He who believes in the Son should have eternal life, number one, And again, I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 44, again, I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 47, whoever believes has eternal life. Verse 50, and now here's where the feeding connection gets a little bit more explicit. Verse 50, the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. Verse 51, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. There are two in verse 54. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood, number one, has eternal life. And here it is again. It must be important. I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 57, whoever feeds on me will live. Verse 58, whoever feeds will live forever. Y'all, there's so much repetition here. It must be that we're a little thick-skulled, perhaps, over and over again. Apparently, we've got some doubting in this area that needs to be resolved. Apparently, we've got such little confidence that needs to be bolstered and perhaps misplaced confidence that needs to be corrected. Friend, will you hear me very clearly this morning? If you have placed your faith and trust in the finished work of Christ. If you plead before God the merits of Jesus 
shed blood and His righteous life to cover your sin and your guilt and rebellion, then you will make it in the end. You will absolutely make it. That is truth. That is certainty. But here's the thing that I want to point out to you this morning. That's not just going to happen. It's not going to be that you made this decision a long time ago and then you go about your life and 20 or 30 or 50 years later, poof, you're in. It's not just going to happen. It's going to happen because Jesus causes it to happen. It's going to happen because Jesus is feeding you and He's keeping you and He's preserving you and He's sustaining you. He's keeping you from stumbling and faltering and failing and falling away. It just doesn't happen. He causes it to happen. He ensures that it happens. You don't persevere. You are persevered. You're kept. You're preserved. Part of Jesus' saving work is keeping you. He will lose nothing of all that the Father has given Him. And this passage shows us that His keeping is feeding If He feeds you, He will raise you up on the last day. He came to feed us. And this is a great source of hope. Number two, if you're not offended, you're not paying attention. Now, something is not quite right about me. Right? There are many clues. One clue of something that just ain't right is I just love it when Jesus offends people. I just love it when I come across a passage of Scripture and He's offending someone. One of my all-time favorite passages of Scripture is Mark 7 and the Syrophoenician woman who has the demon-possessed daughter and He comes, she comes and she says, Jesus, will you help my little girl? And He calls her a dog. And I love that passage. There's something wrong with me. This passage is also a gem. It's a gem. I love this passage. The Jews in Jesus' Jesus audience are grumbling. They're getting their feathers all ruffled. They are all been out of shape. Verse 41, we see it to begin. They're grumbling about this claim that he's come from heaven. And they're like, no, you haven't. You came from Nazareth. We know your mom and your dad. But then it gets worse. And in verse 52, they're disputing and they're saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Because in verse 51, he makes a very specific connection. He's getting really specific about what he's talking about when he says, I'm bread and I've come to feed you. Because in verse 51, he says, this bread that I'll give you, it's my flesh. And so I can picture hands in the synagogue synchronized in this collective gasp of air. He said, what? 
And so it's at this point that Jesus then begins to soft pedal and him and haw and say, oh, guys, 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 let me explain, let me explain. That's not what Jesus does at all. He doesn't back down at all. He pushes further. Verses 53 through 55, he says, let me be more specific. Let me be more graphic. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. How utterly shocking these pietistic Jewish sensibilities for whom the law strictly forbids drinking blood and eating flesh while the blood is still in it and cannibalism. Well, don't even go there. This picture that Jesus paints is so repugnant and they are so offended. And so I'm sitting back and I'm reading this and I'm chuckling with delight because I love how he's offending them. And then I realize I need to be offended too. If I read this, I better be offended. And it's not about eating flesh or drinking blood, though that's kind of gross. I'm not offended by the physical connotation, I need to be offended by the spiritual connotation. That if I don't let Jesus feed me, then I have no life in me. That if I don't eat His flesh and drink His blood, then I've got nothing. He's forcing me to admit poverty more than poverty, bankruptcy. He forces me to say, I've got nothing. I bring nothing to this equation other than my sin and guilt. Friends, that's the essence of the gospel. Jesus isn't something that we add to our lives as some type of life improvement. He's not some type of little boost or help or shot in the arm. He either is our life or we have no life. That's the gospel. We have no merits of our own to plead, only his. And so this terribly offensive admission he causes us to make It's so humbling. It is so wounding to our pride and to our egos and to our American sense of self-reliance. If you're not offended by the gospel, you're not paying attention. Third point, the necessity of flesh and blood. Now, I'm going to cut this point a little short for time's sake and leave you a little more work to do on your own. But I do want to point you down a couple of paths for you to read and reflect and study. 
Have you ever wondered why it had to be his flesh? What's the significance of that? He's called himself the bread of life, and then he says, the bread is my flesh, in verse 51. Now, why is that? It has to do with the work that he's doing, that he has done on our behalf. His body has to be broken. His flesh has to be torn because he's taking on our mortality. These broken and failing bodies of ours, it's so frustrating. They get sick and they age and they fall apart and they will eventually die. And so for Jesus to be our Savior, to come and to rescue, to heal, to save, to do all these things that he has come to do, he had to take on our mortality so that we might share in his immortality. Remember all those references to eternal life and living forever and not dying in all those verses? That only comes because, and I'll use John Calvin's words here, because Jesus in his flesh has devoured and swallowed up death. He did that in his body, in his flesh. And it's not just his flesh, there's also mention here of his blood as well. And so it's this combo, this flesh and blood, it's a combo that's often used to refer to to the whole of something, the whole of someone, completeness. And friends, his work for you is complete. His work for you is whole. His body was broken. He took our punishment. He was crushed. He was pierced. His blood was shed. It was poured out. And because of that, we're sprinkled. We're washed. We're made clean. See, ours is a complex problem as we stand before a holy God It's the bad that we've got and it's the good that we don't got. And Jesus deals with that complex problem completely and wholly. And so in Christ our guilt is removed and we're made clean and new. So these are the benefits of feeding not only on His flesh but also His blood. And so this is what you need to consider. This is what you need to Spend some more time on. Number four on your outline. Probably the weirdest sermon point I've ever had. A not about the Lord's Supper passage helps us understand the Lord's Supper. I told you that I love this passage. And I've really wrestled with it over the years. And I remember studying it in depth for the first time in seminary in a, in a class on John's Gospel. And I remember vividly when my bubble was burst by my professor and he said, this passage is not about the Lord's Supper. I said, oh, but wait, please, wait. How can it not? Eating his flesh and drinking his... How can that not? And I so badly wanted it to be about the Lord's Supper. And so I read more and I studied more and I found more and more folks... Folks that I respected who kept saying, nope, not about the Lord's Supper. 
And even Calvin, who comes as close to saying it's kind of about the Lord's Supper, eventually says, nah, not really. And so I'm still wrestling with that as the week starts, and then finally the penny drops. And I get it, I think. And I say, aha, it's not about the Lord's Supper. Which helps me understand the Lord's Supper that much more. This passage isn't about the Lord's Supper. It's about the reality that the Lord's Supper represents. Right, that's a subtle distinction. Let me try to flesh it out for you. This passage in John 6 is about reality. The reality of feeding on Christ. The Lord's Supper is a sign and a seal of that reality. Right? That's how we define a sacrament. We, we've got two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, and we talk about them being signs and seals. Okay? They are signs that point to greater realities. If you're driving on I-26, heading toward Columbia, you'll see a sign, perhaps, that says Columbia, 25 miles. Right? That sign is not itself Columbia. Right? We, we understand that. Columbia is a city of several hundred thousand people. All of the buildings, all of the people... And, and it can't fit on a sign by the side of the highway. That sign is just a piece of metal with green and white paint. But that sign has a representation of Columbia, points you to Columbia, signifies where Columbia is. Our sacraments are signs in that they point to greater realities. But they are also seals of these greater realities. Think about your college diploma, perhaps, that has that seal on it, right? It's got a bunch of words that says, you know, what your degree is and when you got it and from what school and what... Com- but it's got a seal on it. And it's probably gold and fancy and an intricate little design. And it's probably embossed into the paper and you can feel it. That seal authenticates, it validates. The piece of paper is another sign, if you will representing your years of hard work and dedication and blah, blah, blah at said institution to get your degree. But the seal says, hey, it's the real deal. It's valid. It's authentic. Couldn't just do this in Photoshop. It's the real deal. And so a sacrament is both a sign that points us to a greater reality and a seal that authenticates it and validates it and said, this is the real thing. This is the real deal. And so this passage in John 6 is about the reality that Christ is feeding us with his flesh and blood. And this feeding is happening all the time. It's not just limited to this one moment when we come to the table. It's happening all the time. Okay, hanging with me so far? Because now I need to muddy the waters just a little bit, okay? Uh, Because for me, understanding what's going on in a sacrament, what's going on in the Lord's Supper, is a bit like trying to master an understanding of the Trinity, okay? It's not going to happen. 
right? We'll try to use our human words and come up with things and figure it out. And at the end of the day, we're still going to fail at some level. There's still some portion of a mystery left that we just can't wrap our feeble minds around. I think understanding the sacraments are a little bit like that. Christ is feeding us all the time with his flesh and his blood. And he is especially feeding us in this moment in just a few moments when we come to this table. He's feeding us all the time. He's especially feeding us in this moment if we come with expectant and believing hearts. We, see, we feed on Christ by faith. And so this is oozing ever so slightly into the fifth point on your outline. How do we feed on Christ? Well, we feed on Christ by faith. If I explain to you two errors that, it, that we have when it comes to understanding the sacrament, maybe that will help a little bit more. There are, there are two errors. Understanding what happens when a sacrament is administered. What's happening in that moment? There are two errors. Errors. The first error is to think, well, nothing's really happening in that moment. Right? It's remind us, reminding us of something intellectually, um, but there's no real power being transferred in the moment. There's nothing actually happening. And so that's an error. Right? That's an error because the Lord's Supper doesn't mean nothing. Right? But then the other error on the opposite end of the spectrum is where we would confuse the sacrament with the reality itself. And that we would think, okay, by ingesting this square of bread and sipping this little cup of Welch's, I am feeding on Christ. No, that's not it either. It doesn't mean nothing, and it's not some automatic mechanical thing where we can just come pick up a square of bread and a plastic cup of juice and and we're good to go and so this is where it's difficult like the trinity i think there's a level of mystery left that we're just not going to figure out Um, and i was greatly humbled by but also encouraged by as i read a bunch of calvin this week trying to figure this thing out when he's writing about the lord's supper after a long very long uh, treatise on the lord's supper he finally comes to the conclusion he says this is a mystery so vast that i well know surpasses my powers of comprehension i'm thinking but you're john calvin come on all right so there's, there's an element of mystery left here. But here's the little bit of help that I, that I can give you in the direction I'm going to point you in. It's not nothing, nor is it the reality itself. It's not this automatic thing that we can just go through the motions and benefit from. It is somewhere in between, and what it is and what we receive from it is the result of faith. Not of the mechanics of ingesting bread and juice, but of faith. That's how we're fed by Christ continually, is by faith. That's how we're fed, especially in this moment, is not by the bread and not by the Welches, but again by faith. That we expect him to meet us there. That we expect him to be continually meeting us and keeping us and preserving us. 
If you look back carefully through this passage, which I hope that you will do, you'll see this real strong connection between feeding and believing and even abiding. You know, I'm not even getting to verse 56, which is so big of this, this abiding and us in him and he in us. This is how we remain. This is how we're kept. This is how we're fed. This is how we know that we'll make it to the end. He's doing it. He's keeping. He's holding on tight. He's feeding and sustaining. And this is what you and I, and this is not a pun. This is not a pun. This is what you and I need to chew on for a long, long time. His feeding. Our believing His feeding, His abiding in us, our abiding in Him. Let's pray. Oh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we've got to have Your help. If this is going to make sense, if it's going to sink deep down, You've got to be the one to do the pounding down into our feeble minds and our doubting hearts. You've got to help make it reality. And Lord, would you help us to navigate this mystery of of the reality of Christ always feeding us, and the reality that He's especially feeding us when we come to the table if we come with believing hearts. Lord, keep us from error. Keep us from thinking that we can just go through the motions, be it at this table or be it in our day-to-day lives thinking that He'll feed us automatically when we see pretty clearly that He's feeding us by faith. And so Lord, grant to us that gift of faith that we need to believe, that we need to trust, that we need to rest, and that we need to lean on the work that Christ has done. Oh, help us to that end, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. And so we come to the table. And so we